This morning's reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you that uh, your presence here this morning is just as real as our very own. That when we gather to, to praise your name, to lift you up, to worship you, Lord, that you, uh, the scriptures tell us that you inhabit the praises of your people. And Father, we're also thankful that as we read your scriptures and we interact with them and meditate on them, that you promise that you work through them to change our hearts and to change our lives. So we pray to that end this morning, Lord. We pray that you would change our hearts, that you would bring it in line with the good news of the gospel, and ultimately that you would help us to see you. In Christ's name, amen. There was a great article, I think it was last month, um, in Baltimore Magazine that was called Remnants of Things Past. And uh, it was a story about uh, a photographer uh, whose name was Ben Marson, and uh, he has uh, recently released a, uh, a art, an art gallery showing uh, that uh, shows photographs of areas in Baltimore. In fact, I think I put a photograph in your bulletin for you to look at. If you, if you kind of page through the bulletin, you'll, you'll eventually see it. Uh, this photograph, uh, Ben Marson, uh, it's, he's not an artist by trade, but it's something he does on the side. It's a hobby, and he's traveled all around the world trying to take uh, photos of interesting things and, and uh, create different uh, art pieces through them. Uh, but he found his most recent illustration here in his hometown of Baltimore. And he said that as he drove around the city, he would see uh, homes, row homes, all throughout certain neighborhoods of Baltimore City that often would stand alone. If you've driven through Baltimore, you've seen these before. They're, they're homes that, that kind of are, are little slivers where all the other homes around them have been demolished, but for whatever reason, that house stands strong when the others have gone. And he was fascinated by this. So he went through all sorts of different neighborhoods and took pictures of these uh, last homes that were standing. He says, the stark and unsentimental photos managed to reveal both the decay and ghostly beauty of some of Baltimore's iconic row houses and their fading environments. He calls them monuments to dead neighborhoods that exist all throughout Baltimore. But one of the things that he said that he found most profound about this was this very simple thing in that these homes were meant to be attached to something. They were meant to be attached to something. You know, we live in a very individualistic society. Independence is prized. uh, Self-sufficiency is prized. Being able to figure out life on our own terms is something that is valued. But the scriptures remind us that just like those homes, we were meant to be attached to something. Uh, over the past couple of months, we've been looking at this, uh, this book of Acts that's recorded for us in the New Testament. And the book of Acts takes place after Jesus' Jesus's life, 
his, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. Uh, the scriptures tell us that after he was resurrected, he uh, visited with his uh, followers for 40 days, and eventually he was ascended back into heaven after he gave his his apostles, these kind of marching orders or these mission, this mission that they were to live there themselves by. And Acts tells us what those first believers did after Jesus returned back into heaven. Luke, it's, 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 it's the second part of, of Luke's larger narrative. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. Uh, he was commissioned by uh, an independent kind of wealthy uh, philanthropist who wanted to know about Jesus. So he commissioned Luke to learn everything he could about Jesus and, and to write about Jesus' life. And Luke does that in the Gospel of Luke. But the book of Acts continues that story. And it continues the story about what Jesus' followers did once Jesus had returned back into heaven. And more than anything, it records for us this remarkable work of the Gospel as it transformed the first century world. Through largely urban church planning initiatives, as, as Jesus' followers went from city to city and declared this message to the gospel in very profound ways and transformed the ancient world. And as you look at it, you see incredible, miraculous growth that happened out of these followers of Jesus Christ. If you were with us last week for Easter, you notice that, that Peter preached a sermon, that very first Christian sermon, and 3,000 people were converted that day. Just amazing numbers of people were converted to Jesus Christ in miraculous ways. And they were being attracted to the gospel in very amazing ways. They were being attracted to the message of the gospel, the message that Peter preached in this first sermon that we've talked about often here at City Church, but they were also attracted to something different. They were attracted to this community of faith that they were witnessing, and as they witnessed it, they longed desperately to be a part of it. You see, what it wasn't so much, it wasn't only about the message, but it was about this community of faith that they were attracted to as well. I've often been interested in St. Patrick for obvious reasons, uh, but St. Patrick was a missionary who operated to the, to the Celts and the Brits and the, and the Irish back in the, in the, in the 400s. And uh, he was an incredible guy who went all throughout the world spreading this message of the gospel. But one of his strategies in spreading the message of the gospel was establishing vibrant communities of faith. These were communities that he would establish as he went from city and city to city and country to country. And as he established these communities, he taught them how to love one another. He taught them how to care for one another. He taught them how to live out this message of the gospel. And others would be so attracted to these communities that that became the strategy with which people were converted to Christ. Yes, they were transformed by the message, but they were also attracted to this community of faith that they witnessed. And they viewed it from the outside and they said, what they are doing is amazing and I want to be a part of it. You see, it's not all that different than what was happening in the first church that we see in our passage this morning. Our passage tells us that there were really three main things that these first followers of Jesus devoted themselves to. They weren't things that they cared half-heartedly about. They were things that they devoted themselves to that made them so attractive to the watching world. The first thing that they devoted themselves to was the message. They devoted themselves to the gospel. It says in verse 42, 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You see, these first century believers devoted themselves to the very thing that these apostles had heard and seen and witnessed from Jesus Christ himself. It was what we call the gospel now, or it's what we call the good news of Jesus Christ. And the gospel became the fuel for this movement. If there was no gospel, there was no movement in this first century. It became the fuel. It became the mechanism by which God transformed the first century world. Paul writes very powerfully in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel itself is the very power of God for salvation for those who believe. It's, and that Greek word isn't just kind of power, but it's, it's dynamite is the connotation it has. That it was not just the power, but it was the dynamite at which God changed and transformed that first century world. The gospel was the message. It was the good news of God that he had come to provide rescue from our sins and from the enslavement and the tyranny of sin that exists in our lives. But one of the things that the apostles taught is that this gospel was not just the beginning of the faith. It's not just the entry point of the faith. It's not just the beginning stuff that we have to learn and then move on to the really good stuff. It is the entire journey of the faith. You see, this gospel message, it's, it's, it's not just the, as one pastor put it, it's not just the A, B, and C's of the faith, but it's the A to Z of the faith. And that the gospel has something to say about not just how we become believers in Jesus Christ, but it also speaks to how we live this faith out from start to finish. The gospel has something very powerful to say about every situation that you and I are confronted with and about every relational dynamic that we have to deal with. All of it comes back to this message of the gospel. And those first century believers realized that we don't ever grow beyond it. We don't ever grow beyond the gospel to deeper parts of the faith. It is the essence of the faith. It is this journey of faith from the very beginning to the very end. And everything relates back to this good news of the gospel. And they centered themselves on that message. They devoted themselves to that message because they knew that our default setting is to forget about it. Our default setting is to try to find something else out of God. Our default setting is trying to live life on our own terms. It's, it's easy to forget about it. It's easy to lose sight about it. So much so that we have to devote ourselves to it. We have to remind ourselves of it. One reformer said, we actually have to beat it into our heads because we so quickly forget this message, this powerful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it is the power, not just for the faith, but for the life of this faith too. And that's what the gospel, that's what those first century believers devoted themselves to. And because they devoted themselves to the gospel, the natural consequence was they devoted themselves to each other. They devoted themselves to each other. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I think when you compare the the first century church to, to what church has become nowadays, this may be the one area where we tend to be most deficient in. 
a long time ago, well, not a long time ago, but maybe 10, 15 years ago, the trend in churches was to uh, build and construct and design churches in some ways to look like movie theaters. There's nothing wrong with this. That's just the way people did it. It's just the way people designed it and the way things were. But one of the natural consequences that came from that is that often people view church as a spectator activity. That church becomes this place where they come and they kind of uh, spectate, where they view the things that are going on, uh, they consume the church's goods, and then they leave and they go back uh, to life as it was. And if the church doesn't, if they don't like the, the goods the church is offering, it doesn't fit with their kind of consumer mentality, then they just go on to a different church where they can become a better spectator. But what the first century church uh, shows us is not a, the church was not a spectator activity. It was an activity that was full of participation. And the byproduct of that Christian community was that everyone who showed up knew that they weren't just there for a show. They were there to be a part of something vibrant, to be a part of a community of faith, and it demanded and involved their participation as believers. You know, this, this idea of spectating church would have been very foreign to those first century believers because Acts tells us that these first century believers were a part of a community that gave itself to one another, a community that was devoted in very powerful ways to one another. One person wrote that as the New Testament speaks of it, fellowship is a deep, virile, and costly too often today, it's become cheap and superficial. The higher we value our personal privacy and freedom from the commitments, the shallower, we, the shallower our grasp of fellowship will be. Reduced to moments of idle chit-chat over steaming coffee before and after a worship service. You know, there's been a lot that's been said about the radical generosity that is talked about in these first century followers as they devoted themselves to one another. Now, there's no question that these first century believers were intimately involved in one, in one another's life. They cared deeply for one another. They, they weaved the fabric of each other's lives together in such a way that it gave birth to this kind of radical generosity that they had from one another, for one another. And the tendency to look at this is to think that this was some sort of kind of Christian communism that had developed in the first century. But the New Testament doesn't give any sort of hint at that. The New Testament doesn't give any sort of hint that people weren't allowed to own private property and homes and things like that. But I think what the gospel, what Luke is trying to communicate to us has much more of a familial tone to it than it does any sort of communistic tone or anything like that at all. Think about it this way. Uh, I am a member of a family. And there are five people in my family. I grew up in a family of five as well. And uh, I have three kids that are all very young, right? And they are totally dependent on my wife and I for food and for clothing and for shelter. If we just kind of set them off to try to do that on their own, it would not look pretty at all. Now, at some point, they're going to get older. And they're not going to have to rely on mom and dad anymore for those things, Lord willing. Lord willing, they'll grow up, they'll become productive citizens and all that. They'll, they'll discover jobs that tend to be more lucrative than what dad has chosen to do with his life. And there may come a time in their life where they now have to come back and support dear old mom and dad. 
Maybe not financially, but they might have to care for us. They might have to cook us meals. They might have to do all that sort of stuff. And that's what it means to be a family. That there are times where we have to pick one another up and care for our needs. There are times where we might have to depend on the person next to us. And then there are times when that person next to us has to depend upon us. And that's what this first century were committing themselves to do. They saw one another as a family. They saw one another as committed to this gospel, committed to this gospel message, but also committed to one another as the family of Christ. Now, the flip side of that isn't always pretty, right? And that sometimes our family annoys us, right? And I've talked to many people throughout, throughout my years in ministry who have been hurt very deeply by people that are in the church. And many have actually walked away from the faith because they've been deeply hurt by people in the church. So those are very real and very true things. But part of what it means to be in a faith community is a commitment to work through those things with one another. In some ways, we don't get to pick who we go to church with. We will offend one another. We will hurt one another. We will bother and annoy one another. But ultimately, because we've devoted ourselves to this community, we walk through this thing together because we have been so changed by the message and because God is uniting us together as a family. The third thing you see these first century, uh, these first century believers devoted to is this thing called worship. It says in verse 36, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. This might be something that we've really lost in the church as well. As I mentioned before, I often run into believers uh, in Jesus Christ who have given up on the church as as, as an institution. That they say, I'm, I'm content to, to follow Jesus. Uh, I'm content to kind of have my faith between me and God. But I've, I've, I've grown beyond the need for the church. Or I've grown beyond the need to engage in worship. Or the need to be a part of a church community. But that idea would have been absolutely foreign to those first century believers. Because they knew that part of what it meant to follow Jesus was to be engaged and devoted into the worship of him in the context of community. Uh, Some of you know that um, City Church is a newer church. And uh, we've been working on this thing for a long time. And we had opportunities to name ourselves and kind of come up with a name and come up with vision and value and all that sort of stuff. Well, one of the most interesting discussions that we ever had had as a church is when we were getting ready to launch into worship. And uh, we were looking at our options as to when should we meet and where should we meet and what should we do. And uh, finally, we settled on, on 8.30 in the morning here in this chapel. And it was after hours and hours of discussion and trying to figure out what could be the best thing to do. And, and part of that is, is what we should do. We ought to consider about what best meets the needs of our neighborhood, what best meets the needs of our city and all that sort of stuff. And we weighed what could people do and what couldn't they do with our schedule. And we landed on this kind of time segment as the best thing to do. But part of that conversation, always in the back of my mind as I thought about it and as we thought about it as a team, is part of that conversation would have been absolutely foreign to the first century church. Because if, if you know, say that first century leader came and said, we're going we're gonna to worship God at 8.30 in the morning one Sunday, the first century believers would say, can we worship God at 8.30 every single morning of the week? And part of that is because they were devoted 
to this thing called worship. They were devoted that they could not get enough of it. They couldn't get enough to fill their lives, to fill their schedule with opportunities to gather together as a community of faith and worship God in a very powerful way. Worship, the gathering together for worship was their lifeblood. When life threw them challenges, when life threw them difficulties, when life threw them persecutions, they flocked together for worship because worship for them was the very center of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So for these first century believers, they devoted themselves to the gospel, they devoted themselves to each other, and ultimately they devoted themselves to worship. And what our passage tells us is there were two very powerful byproducts of this devotion. The first was joy. It says in verse 44, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. They received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. They were characterized by joy. So much so that people would look from the outside and see these first century believers and and what they were devoting their lives to and saying, that is what I want to devote my life to because I see such incredible joy out of these believers. Sadly, so often the church today is not characterized by joy. And it's often because we've bought into a low-risk, low-reward view of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be involved in a church. But these first century believers devoted themselves to it, and the byproduct was inexpressible joy. And it didn't mean their lives were easy. It didn't mean that they, weren't, they didn't struggle with persecutions and difficulty and pain and all that. But because they devoted themselves to it, they were drawn into this joy that was unspeakable. The second byproduct was growth. And that Acts tells us that this community of the Spirit became so attractive that it just drew people in in droves from all around. It was so attractive to those that were watching that the Scriptures tell us the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And as we'll read through and look through this book of Acts, we'll see that thousands and thousands of people were transformed by the view of this community of faith that was so incredible and so powerful. One of my favorite quotes that I've ever read before, and it's something that I, that I think about all the time, goes like this. It says, If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood, and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for endless, the endless immensity of the sea. You know what was happening in that first century? is that the apostles weren't necessarily telling them how to have a community of faith through a bunch of how-tos or a bunch of theological propositions, but they were demonstrating the beauty of what it meant to be in a community of faith. And because of that, it was drawing people from all over. You see, everybody deep down desires this. They desire for life. They desire for community. And what that first century church did is they didn't lecture people on how to have community. They demonstrated it. And because of it, it changed that first century world. Wouldn't it be beautiful to start seeing this type of growth in our our neighborhood? 
to see this type of joy that God brings in our midst, to see this sort of transformation, to see this vibrant community happening and, 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 and transforming our very city. It's the thing we most desire about this church planning initiative. So the, so the question is, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? And I think what Luke wants all of Christ's followers after he wrote this to begin to examine is what are the things that we are devoting ourselves to? Not just as a community of faith, but as people and as individuals around. What are the things that we devote our lives to? You know, the first century church, um, what you see from this passage is that they considered massive amounts of time and ultimately massive amounts of money to this community of faith. And in some ways, that hasn't changed for us as well. And that as you think about our life and our world now, time and money still tend to be the most precious commodities that you and I have as individuals. And what the scriptures are very clear about is where we spend our time and where we spend our money tends to be a window into our desires. It tends to be a window into those things that we are devoting ourselves to. It tends to be a window into those things that we desire so much for our life. So the scary thing about that and the scriptural thing that that teaches us is that if you really want to understand what you are devoted to and what your desires are and where your passions lie, examine where you spend your money and examine where you spend your time are two most precious commodities. And often when I look at my own life and I examine my own calendar and I examine my own checkbook, I realize that often my devotions lie in much lesser things than what is demonstrated for us in this very first century church. So what do we do about it? How do we change our devotions? How do we change our passions? How do we change our desires? And I think the answer comes in recognizing that Jesus fully devoted himself to us. What the gospel message tells us is that Jesus came, he, took all, he, he, he set aside all the wealth and privileges and wonders of heaven, and he became like one of us. He was born into poverty. He subjected himself to all the difficulties of what it means to be a human being like you and I. He subjected himself not just to the difficulties of being a human, but he subjected himself to punishment that we deserve, to beatings, to execution, to all those things. Why? Because he was intimately and passionately devoted to you. And what I find that as I reflect on the fact that Jesus devoted himself fully to me, I find that my devotion to lesser things tends to fall away. The more we recognize just how much he was devoted to us. You see, it was the grace of God that bound this first century community together. And ultimately, it is the grace of God that binds you and I together in this community of faith. This kind of love and this kind of community can only be fueled by the grace of God and lives that are lived in gratitude for what he has done for you and I. So the challenge for all of us as we look at these first century believers and we see what they devoted themselves to, the challenge for us is to examine our own heart, to examine our own lives, to see what we devote ourselves to and then center ourselves anew and afresh on the gospel that tells us 
that Jesus devoted himself to you and I and was willing to go to the greatest extent possible to demonstrate his devotion to you and I. And then our prayer has to become that God would make these things true in our midst. That we as people would be characterized by joy and that we as a community of faith would be characterized by this joy as well. All because we center ourselves on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us that he has done everything necessary for us to be reconciled to the Father and rescued from our sin.